This episode deals with the sensitive and disturbing topic of suicide based on the personal experience of Rabbi Shalom Hammer, whose daughter Gila died by suicide. While Rabbi Hammer is not a mental health professional, his viewpoint and approach, grounded in that tragedy, is very important for us all to hear. When a person dies, the people who are affected find themselves confused. And I wouldn't even say confused, let's go beyond that. They're in a complete state of chaos. So when your life becomes chaos, you don't know how to react. You don't know necessarily how to talk to people. And all of a sudden, your communicative skills are gone. So I ask people who want to comprehend what someone's going through who is bereaved to understand that they are in a state of chaos. And if they have to leave a social setting or if they can't respond to you properly, or if they look angry or sad on a particular day, or if they're not as misameach at your children's wedding, it's not personal. It's because they are in a state of chaos, and they're not sure exactly what to do, not with you, but with themselves. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Last week, I spoke with Rabbi Shalom Hammer about the changes that he feels we must make in order for Israeli society to better deal with mental illness in general and suicidal ideation in particular. This week, I spoke with Rabbi Hammer again, and we had a very difficult and emotional, but I think important, conversation. His daughter Gila died by suicide almost two years ago. They will be commemorating her passing on Chet Kislev, which this year falls out on the 12th of November. Rabbi Hammer offered his personal insights on dealing with grief, relating to the rest of the children after the death of a child, how it affected his faith in God, what has been helpful and hurtful, the process of moving forward, and more. Rabbi Shalom Hammer is a lecturer for the Israeli Defense Forces and an educator in the Nativ Conversion Course of the IDF. He's a certified instructor for mental health first aid. Rabbi Hammer is the founder and director of Makom Mishutaf, an organization which offers non-denominational and non-coercive educational programming throughout Israel's pre-military academies in Kibbutzim, emphasizing open dialogue, empathy, and breaking stigmas in mental health. He has authored five books and serves as a lecturer for communities worldwide. If you would like to contribute in Gila's memory to help Rabbi Hammer break stigmas in mental health, please click on the link that appears in the description of this podcast. Rabbi Shalom Hammer, thank you very much for joining me once again on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you, Rabbi Khan. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I know that this is going to be a very difficult episode. I think it's important that we talk nonetheless and that our listeners hear about grief and bereavement. Let's open up by your telling us Gila's story. Well, I mean, Gila's story is tragic because uh, as many people are familiar Gila was a rambunctious, vivacious, uh, social butterfly. She was a girl that was consistently, and I'm not just saying this to sound cliche, but she really was consistently happy. And people gravitated to her, to her magnetic personality. And uh, her future was wide open. The amount of things that she could do, the impact that she had on people. I very often say that people who met her 
in all probability, even once they would not forget her. That was the kind of impression that she left. So she was really larger than life. And unfortunately, tragically, uh, when, um, you know, two years ago, even three years ago, actually, uh, she experienced a very serious trauma. Uh, I can't go into the details, but it's something that I do speak about in my lectures. Uh, she was traumatized in a very serious way. And um, that's a trauma that she carried with her and it slowly uh, brought her down into patterns of anxiety, depression, and ultimately uh, self-harming. And tragically, it led to her, to her demise uh, through her tragic death by suicide. Obviously, we as parents, we're trying and our best, our hardest uh, to give her 24-7 and to the attention and care that she needed, but we weren't exactly given the right professional advice or the professional guidance and direction. And we've spoken about that together a number of times. And now we are living essentially with, uh, with her death um, and living with the lives of our children and the rest of our family. And as I explain consistently to people, when they ask me how I am, how are you doing? Um, you know, if hopefully they're sincere about it. It's a question that requires a lot of a long answer, but to sum it up, and this really, I guess, will give segue into this part of the program. Uh, you know, we often refer to Gam when we walk on the valley of death, you know, we have confidence in Hashem. And I find myself consistently walking between life and death, the throes of death that the, the loss of Gila has caused us, uh, me personally, my entire family personally, obviously. And uh, secondly, the... Um, the, the life as well that we still long to live and that we want to live very much for our children, for our family, for ourselves, and to help others as well. So it's a very confusing state to be in. Can you elaborate a little bit, as painful as it might be, on what that means to be walking between life and death at all times? Obviously, no one moves away from what happened, but I want to know what that means to you and how maybe you could help our listeners understand what you've been going through. So what happens is, is that Khalila, God forbid, when someone loses someone else, um, and I'm going to speak about personally the loss of a child, it, it's so traumatic. It, it, it's such a trauma that it throws you into all kinds of directions. So on the one hand, uh, you're depressed and you're sad and you're crying and I cry consistently every day. On the other hand, there is a recognition that you're alive. And that your children are alive, and my grandchildren are alive. Baruch Hashem, Sim Shana. So while on the one hand, I have to live, and I have to give them the attention that's due to them, and that I want to give them, and I have to live the life with my wife that I want to live. On the other hand, you're pulled in another direction because you almost feel like when I'm living and when I'm involved in life, is that almost disrespectful to the memory of Gili? Um, now, there's no question that Gila's death will always pull me in her direction, uh, the pain, the torment, the difficulty, the challenge. But even when I'm feeling, you know, at times happiness, which does happen at the end of the day, you know, after that little while, you then return to yourself and say, wait a minute, um, Gili, I know that you're with us. And that brings you back to another place. So you're constantly torn between this contradict of living and of dealing with death. 
Um, someone asked me the other day, you know, kind of like, what does it feel like? And I explained to them that, you know, they asked me, do you still experience joy? Do you still experience happiness? And I answered to them, of course we do. But I compared it to someone who, you know, if we were eating food. So if you take a, um, you know, a biscuit or a cookie as, you know, and, and it's sweet and has chocolate on it and it tastes really good. So someone could thoroughly enjoy it. But to me, I also enjoy the taste but there's always a stale taste to it. So we live life, but to a certain extent, there's always a stale accompaniment to it because of what we go through. Now, clearly, even though Gila will always be with you and this will always be an important aspect of living for you, you have moved forward doing projects and living life and, as you say, experiencing joy. How have you managed to move forward to the degree that you've been able to do so? First of all, your usage is 100% correct. Uh, it's something that I emphasized at the beginning, um, shortly after Gila died. I heard a lecture from someone um, outside, I think from Canada, and I forget her name, excuse me, but she lost her, her husband. I think she also lost a child. And she explained about how important it is for people to understand that we who are in mourning and consistently dealing with loss we don't move on. And she said, you know, some people say, you know, now it's time for you to move on. Moving on implies that you forget what was in the past, right? So when I move on, I open a new page. That never happens. But what we do is we move forward. We try to move forward. And inevitably, you have to you sort of our courage to move forward because you're living your life and you're still very much alive. Uh, the way that I chose to move forward, um, and I explain this consistently, is that, I, look, I, I have tiffs with God, and I, um, I'm not angry at him, but I would like at least for him to explain to me once, you know, why this happened. And I realize that he doesn't owe me that, and that'll never happen, and that probably I'll never make sense of what happens. But I guess the most productive way, or the way that I could kind of grapple and make sense of what's going on around me is by being more of an activist. Um, I've always been an activist and I've always been involved and I've always thrown myself into things head first for better or for worse. But the only way I could make sense or deal with Gila's loss is by ensuring that it doesn't happen to other people again. So I have found to a certain extent, I guess some source of comfort in, um, in lecturing, in disseminating, in bringing information, in informing, and hopefully helping and guiding people towards better lives and to ensuring that life, that, that their lives are, in safe, are safe. So really that's the way that I've kind of been able to deal, if you may, or cope with the loss of Gila. And I'll tell you, there are times when I go into a lecture, when before I go in, I turn, whatever that means, to Gili and I say, Gili, come with me now into this lecture. Let's go together. And when I'm finished, I'll go outside to my car and I'll look wherever it is. And I'll say, thanks, Keely, for being there with me and for joining me. So it's not just altruistic what I'm doing. It's therapeutic for me as well. Rabbi Hammer, you just mentioned that you're not angry with God. I'd kind of like to know why. Why are you not angry with God? 
Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't think it's because I'm exceptionally righteous, although that might be the reason. <laughs> um, but I, 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 you know, it's interesting. Gabby and I, my wife Gabby and I, we, we speak about it um, and we've spoken about it in the past and neither of us have really, really ever moved into anger. Now, that's not totally true or accurate because there are times when I will get angry. I, I can't say that I lash out in anger at God, but there are times when I get frustrated and I'm thinking to myself, why did this happen? And I don't have an answer, but it certainly hasn't been anger in a sense that I decided to become less devout or a man of less faith or a man less akin to serving God. Uh, if anything, perhaps in a strange way, it's, it's, it's made my connection to him, capital H, stronger. Uh, in fact, I've said many times, I don't know how someone of no faith and who's atheistic and doesn't believe in God's existence, I don't know how they grapple or deal with such a tragedy because then you're really at a complete loss. At least, you know, I do believe wholeheartedly in the world to come. I believe in the soul. I believe that Gila's soul is somehow intertwined and together in the divine spirit and divine world of God, whatever that means, and I do not know what it means. Um, and there have even been times when I've said to Gabby, you know, one of the things that's, that's very uh, frustrating, uh, I'll say to her, one of the things that really, really is very painful for me is that it hurts me so much that Gila is not doing anything. That, you know, to think about her being completely, you know, motionless, it absolutely kills me, excuse the expression. And Gabby says back to me, my wife, she'll say sometimes, but I don't believe that. I believe she's very busy. And I believe that she's doing a lot of things, perhaps from a different realm and perhaps from a realm that we don't necessarily or certainly cannot comprehend or understand, but she's busy. Um, and, and we believe that. In what ways then has your faith deepened, as you mentioned a moment ago? In what ways has your emunah, your bitachon Hashem, become stronger? Well, I, I'll tell you, Rabbi Khan, I, I never was a big guy delving into the afterlife or into spirits. Uh, I'm not a Kabbalist and I don't read Kabbalah and, you know, and I don't never um, entertain or, or espouse that I necessarily understand these things. But I will tell you that since the death of Gila, I have been privy to witness some serious stuff with regards to Gila. Uh, that have absolutely, in my mind, I'd like to believe, and maybe that's part of it, maybe it's my belief and what I'd like to believe, but in my mind that maybe I'm more sensitive to it, um, I really think she has thrown signs our way. You know, there are times when I've actually tested this and perhaps inappropriately, and I've said, look, Gila, I miss you. I need you. I need you to throw me some kind of sign excuse me, some kind of indication that you're still around, that you're with me. And I've gotten them uh, in very strange ways. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy, I can give you examples, but, um, and I spoke of, speak about them on my, you know, Parsha videos or, or posts. I do mention them. And it, it, it's just, it, to me, it's remarkable. And I think that it is ways of Gila saying, if you may, to us, I'm here and I'll throw you that sign once in a while so that you don't grow deeply and darkly into despair. That's very moving. 
What has given you chizuk or encouragement over the past two years? What sorts of things have given you that ability to move forward and given you the strength to deal with what you're dealing with? Well, at the beginning, it, at the beginning, it was the source came directly from Gila. Uh, like I said, there were a number of incidents and stories that happened that to me were mind-boggling, and were saying were kind of her way to say to me virtually, uh, Abba. You know, keep on, and I'm here with you, and so on and so forth. Um, now, it still is that, but there's two things. Number one, the certainly from the very onset, it's been the importance of having a mission of uh, being supportive of our family, um, saving our children, uh, saving our my spouse, uh, ensuring that they're in. Uh, the right place to be able to continue and to to move forward, as you say. So that certainly is a very large part of my personal, I, I wouldn't call it mission, but obligation as a father and as a grandfather. That doesn't go away. Now, part of that mission as time moves on, uh, and it pains me to say that, but uh, is uh, my mission in terms of helping other people and ensuring that they that they should never ever have to experience the pain and the loss that we are so that has kind of become part of that mantra now i want to be clear i have a lot of weaknesses and there is a lot of things that people could say about me in a negative way and i'll agree with them um <laughs> but there are two things about me number one is sincerity I don't talk any rubbish and what you see is what you get. I'm straight arrow and on the plate. And I don't believe in any other way, uh, which drives me bananas many times in the Jewish world and in the world at large, but certainly in the Jewish world that I see. The second thing is that I am not in things for my own pomp and purpose. I'm not, I'm not a haughty or pompous person person. I, I pride myself in saying that. <laughs> I pride myself in my modesty. I'm not modest, but I'm not pompous. And my point is, I'm not here to toot my horn. So when I say that I'm here to help people, it's sincere. Uh, I, I really care about people. I love people. I care about their lives. And now um, that care, to, to a large extent, it's interesting, this young 18-year-old girl who died way ahead of her time called Gila, who exhumed and exhibited such an amazing persona, um, she really taught me a lot of things. Um, and when I start judging people externally and saying to myself, oh man, that guy drives me crazy. Oh man, why are they, oh, that guy looks like a total jerk. I stop and I hear Gila in my mind saying to me, hey, Abba, come on, that's not the right way to think about someone, whoa. Come on, look at them, look at what they have to offer, look at what they might be, and look how wrong you might be. And I really do hear her voice inside of me consistently about that. And I thank her because it, it makes me a better person. Again, Rabbi Hammer, we're not done, but I have to still say I do appreciate your being so forthright and honest. I know this is a very difficult conversation, but I think it's so important. What religious practices, what mitzvot, halachot, have been helpful for you, and have there been some that have been unusually difficult after Gili's death? 
Yeah. Um, one of the things that that happens, God forbid, when someone's die when someone dies, is that your perspective on life becomes very lucid, very, very, very transparent. So, I, for better or for worse, and unfortunately, right now, tragically, I have the ability to see the world in a very transparent way. And what I mean by that is, I I no longer have tolerance for small talk. One of the problems is I don't have such tolerance for socializing. Uh, particularly in social large groups. And that's a known thing, by the way, with regards to grievers and, and bereaved people. They tend to shy away or hermitize, you know, and ostracize themselves from large social settings. Uh, but it's really that I just don't have the ability to listen to, to rubbish or small talk, because what happens is, is that you realize that in life, those things are not important. And life is too short to waste away on small talk and on innuendos that really have nothing to do with the large picture. So for example, within halachic framework, there's a lot of, and, and by the way, I, I mean no disrespect to halacha, to Jewish law, I'm a rabbi, and I mean no disrespect to the Torah, but there are many things that drive me bananas, like, uh, you know, people who are so makbid, so careful about times of davening and times of shkia and times of when the proper time is to daven and to do this, but yet when it comes, you know, sometimes it's on the cheshbon, it's, uh, it's on the expense of being a decent human being. So, for example, you know, um, if it's like two minutes past the time of davening and we can't wait anymore, even for the person who's mourning and needs to say Kaddish, for example. So the guy's a little late, you know, so it's not the end of the world. God's going to go crazy that Mincha was, uh, you know, afternoon services was a little closer to sunset. You know, on the on the expense of someone's sensitivity and someone's ability to say mourners Kaddish for a lost one, come on. I mean, I don't think God thinks that way, and I don't think He expected us to think that way. I'll give you an example of something that I speak about in my seminar when I discuss uh, mourning. Okay, I was sitting shiva for gila, and a woman came in front of me. This is absolutely remarkable. Uh, a woman came in front of me, and it's a, it's a lady that I know. I'm not particularly that friendly with her, but we know each other. And she stood in front of me, and she said the statement, May the Lord comfort you. And, um, and I said, thank you so much. And as she turned to walk to Gabby and say the same thing, she turned back to me, and she says, and I kid you not, uh, she says, do you remember what you said to me last year? And I said, I'm not sure what you're referring to. She said, you don't remember when you said something insulting to me? And I said, I, I'm so sorry. I'd be honest with you. I wouldn't put it past me. I probably did, <laughs> but I don't recall. I apologize. And she says, you know what? It doesn't matter right now. You're sitting Shiva. I won't bring it up. <laughs> so she won't bring it up. Yeah. I mean, the point is, you know, at the end of the day of every Shiva, our kids, we'd sit around with our kids and we'd say, okay, who had the most um, astounding question or story that came up? And I won the jackpot for that day because of this. <laughs> and the point is that sometimes people, and my one of my rabbis used to always say, sometimes we're so busy being religious that we forget what it means to be Jewish. We get so wrapped up with the intricate details and with the personal agendas that we forget what we're there for to begin with. So um, to me, it, it, it just it just doesn't doesn't weigh up. And it's these little things that lack the, that personal sensitivity that I just that to me is, is ridiculous. Look, I know a lot of people 
even in my neighborhood, who are very, very um, observant about every single little letter of the law. And yet, here's a family that suffered the loss of a child, and they never, ever would come over to me and say, you know, and I get it. You'll start telling people say, oh, we don't know what to say. Come on. You know, you come over to a neighbor and you say, hey, you know, I'm here for you, whatever you need. It's a very easy thing to say. You can make someone feel good. But these people, um, some of them are just so wrapped up in their learning and intricate details of halacha, and they fail to see the large picture. When someone dies, I saw the large picture, I believe, even before Gila died, but it certainly has become more transparent since that loss. Let's talk about that for a moment then. Let's not talk about people who are self-centered and wrapped up in themselves and dealing with halacha and aren't thinking about Ehrlichkeit. What about somebody who really wants to say something to someone who's grieving, to someone who's in mourning, and just doesn't know what to say? Can you give some advice based on your own tragic experience? What do you tell that person who's not self-centered and selfish but doesn't know how to approach someone who's grieving? Right. So so first of all, let me just say... I. You know, I, I like to think that the majority of people are not self-centered and they're not selfish. And by the way, even the person who's wrapped up and enthralled with religious practice and observance, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know if they're necessarily self-centered, but I think their their center is a little askewed. So in other words, rather than seeing the picture and understanding it, there's a lack of understanding and a lack of, of appreciation. But with regards to people not knowing what to say, I used to buy into that because what would happen is, um, inevitably, obviously, you carry around a lot of sensitivity inside of you, particularly after the death, and you kind of wonder, okay, why Why is this person who would always come over and joke around with me or would come over and ask my advice, why are they not only not saying anything to me, but they? you literally notice that they will go to the other side of the road, they'll turn purposely so that they don't look at you because they don't know what to say. And I would sometimes ask Gabby about that. And Gabby, who is a much, much nicer person than I am, by the way, and everyone knows that. I mean, all of our friends are not our friends, they're Gabby's friends. And I just come along as a default. But Gabby would say to me, you know, Shalom, they don't mean it. They just don't know what to say. And I used to buy that. But you know something? Um, I don't buy into it anymore. I'll tell you why. When someone doesn't know what to say, first of all, you don't have to say anything. You can make a gesture, all right? So for example, if you're someone who doesn't know what to say, you can buy flowers and just come over and say, I don't know what to say, thinking of you, and just give them flowers. You can buy a cake or make a cake or bake a bunch of cookies and bring it over to a person's house and write a note and say, I can't say this personally. I just, I'm not sure what to say to you, so I'm writing it down. Writing it down in your own space is much easier. So I don't buy into these excuses in it anymore. I believe people can learn what to say. I did a Google search, okay, in what to say to someone who is bereaved. And Google has a list of options of what you can use. Now, one of the things that you should not say clearly are things that are patronizing, like, um, you know, oh, I'm sure they're in a much better place than they were before. Right. By the way, people say that to me uh, or mm. have said when they say that to me, I say back to them, really, are you prepared to trade places with them if the place is better? You know, so that doesn't help or to say it was their time to go. 
You know, that, that those things don't help at all. But things like saying a memory. I remember Gila when she did the following to me. Those are meaningful uh, because ultimately what a mourner wants, okay, and it's very important for people to understand, what a mourner wants to confirm is that the loved one who's no longer physically here is still here. So I'll give you an example. Our neighbor, who is one of the most, they were just wonderful people, uh, outstanding people, and, and actually <laughs> they really do get it and know what to say and what not to. She came over on Shabbat morning, this past Shabbat. She said, Gabby and Shalom, I had to speak to you. Um, and she actually said, Gabby, I have to speak. She likes Gabby more. And she said, Gabby, and Shalom, I have to speak to you. I have to tell you this. She said, last night I had a dream about Gila. And I know I had to come and talk to you about it immediately because I did not want to forget about the dream because dreams sometimes are forgetful. And here's what happened. And do you know how comforting it was? I know it sounds strange, but it's comforting to hear that from someone because what they're doing is they're confirming I don't forget about Gila, just like you'll never forget. That is the greatest service, in my opinion, you can give to someone who's mourning. I didn't forget them. I have a friend of mine who said, who wrote to me once, I went to Gila's Kever, and it is just the most outstanding, it sounds strange, but it has so many messages resonating with it from that Kever, because it really is a very unique Matseva, unique tombstone and, um, and he said that to me. And again, what he's done is, number one, he's confirmed that he goes to Gila's Kever, okay? And number two, he's shared with me something about Gila that spoke to him. And that is so important. So, I, you know, saying like, I remember your child or a memory or a story that happened with her or a story that he heard or even an occurrence that happened to them that reminded them about Gila, okay? Um, I stopped by your child's grave. You know, these kind of things, they do resonate. And that's what people need to hear. So I don't buy into this stuff about uh, we didn't know what to say. Yeah, I know people are uncomfortable. You know what? You're uncomfortable. Believe me, I'm in a much, much more compromising position than you are. So it's important for people to take that effort and to demonstrate to the mourner and the bereaved we're there with you in some capacity or in some way, or even by not saying anything. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I point out is um, <laughs> when the Torah tells us about Aaron Kohen, you know, Moshe informs Aaron that both of his sons passed away. And it says, Vayidom Aaron, Aaron was silent. So the rabbis all say, wow, Aaron, the great priest, was so unbelievable. He accepted God's judgment. I don't believe that that's what's going on there. What's really going on is Aaron is silent because he's in shock and he doesn't know or have a clue how he's supposed to react to this. I mean, he's completely, completely deprived of any reaction whatsoever. But I do believe also that Chazal or that the Torah actually is teaching us a very important lesson. And that is sometimes actions can take the place of words. You don't necessarily need to say anything but you can give a handshake or you can put a hand around the shoulder or you can, you can bring something over and even leave it by the front door and say, hey, I'm thinking about you, love you guys, and he, this is for you to enjoy Shabbat or to enjoy the day or whatever it is. One of my friends, close friends, 
uh, I once wrote to him a text on WhatsApp because there are certain people that I can outlet to. And I wrote to him and said, I'm having such a hard day. I'm, I'm in such pain. I don't know what to do. And of course, I use the emoji of crying. And within the next few hours, there was a bouquet of flowers waiting at my front door and said, I wanted to bring this over to you for you to have a happy day the Gila way. And, you know, it, it doesn't take away the pain, but it certainly uh, points you in a direction of comfort. And it means the world. Rabbi Hammer, before you talked about at the end of a day of Shiva, talking to your kids, talking to your wife and comparing stories, that leads to the question about balancing maintaining Gila's memory as part of your lives, as a living presence with the living presence of your your other children. How do you work on that balance? Wow. Uh, That's a very, very, very challenging question. By the way, it's a question that I'm still, I still try to figure out every day. Each one of my children, Kainahara, they're outstanding. My children, my grandchildren, um, you know, my, my, and I include, of course, my children's in-laws, my sons-in-law and my daughter-in-law who are like my own children. Uh, they're just outstanding people. Um, and I, I thank God because we do have a strong family, very strong connections. One of the things that we're blessed with is that we're extremely open. People know this about us in general. Uh, we're very open, as you see, from this podcast and from the podcast yes. that I've done with you. I, I, I speak openly and generally speaking, my kids are open with us and that's what counts. Many of them, by the way, it's interesting, a number of them, you should know, are very uncomfortable with the things that I do. In other words, the amount of activity that I do and the amount that I'm involved with uh, Gila's memory, to some of them, it's, um, I don't know how to put it, Um, it puts them in a very, uh, perhaps a precarious or uncomfortable position. And they don't necessarily embrace it wholeheartedly. They get it and they, they kind of allot me my opportunity to do it and they're respectful of it but it doesn't always sit well with them. And um, I think part of the reason why, and I've spoken to my therapist about it, I think part of the reason why is because it kind of uh, um, could be sometimes invasive on their ability to mourn, on their ability to express, on their ability to also have their own outlet. And sometimes I'm so, you know, domineering and so overbearing with what I'm doing and with what I'm involved in and they hear it from others as well, that it kind of invades in their space. So want us to be very, very respectful of their fellow mourners space, particularly their children, their spouse. One also has to recognize that every person has a different way to react to loss. My wife and I are completely different in our approaches and reactions, but we've learned and we always have essentially respected each other's ways. And we even try at times to learn from one another, or at least to share them with each other. But that space sometimes gets invaded and it's important for us to recognize and cause conflict and discomfort. And we have to recognize that it's there. So everyone needs their space. Each one of my children react differently. Each one has their own trauma, perhaps that they experience or that they have to deal with. Uh, in their own way. So I try to be involved. The most important thing is I try to let them know that I'm here for them for whatever 
they need whenever or whatever. And I think that they, they do understand that. That doesn't mean that they don't find me annoying many times, but that's such as the nature of the beast. But I think it's important from my perspective, it's very important to be open and honest and discuss. This is true, by the way, even before, God forbid, there should be loss in a family. Uh, I believe and always preached openness and discussion. Communication is something that has to be there. But it's even more so when you're dealing with a trauma, with a, a conflict, with a tragedy within the family. Um, it just, it just, it's so important to have that communication. And at the very least to know, to let your kids know, hey, you don't have to speak to me if you don't want to. Um, and if that's good with you, that's fine. I respect that. But just know if you ever want to or you ever need to, I'm always here. What would you tell people who are among people who are grieving? What to say and what not to say? How to act and how not to act? You know, first of all, it's very interesting. Like when we talk about bereavement and grieving, okay, one of the important things that I, that I offer is a seminar on how to deal with uh, families who are bereaved and grieving. Because to be honest with you, many rabbis, many communal leaders do not know what to say, what not to say, and how. Uh, we had a rabbi sit with us at the Shiva. He's a rav, a famous rav of a kahila of a, a congregation for over 30 years, okay? And he came, he sat down at our Shiva. Number one, he, he didn't really speak to me. He spoke to my wife, who he knows a little better, but he asked at the Shiva, he asked, how did she die? Now, what does that have to do with anything? I mean, is that, did you come to be investigative or did you come to be helpful? You know, it, it doesn't do anything to ask that question. I had a rabbi, I once sat in a different person's Shiva and the person said, you know, explained that my parent died from, you know, heart failure. So the rabbi goes, oh, my mother also died from heart failure. H how is that helpful? Your confirmation of your pain doesn't assist someone else's, so or the pain that they're in right now. So my point is, this seminar is very, very important. I give it over to Rabbanim in certain frameworks in Or Torah Stone and in Eretz Chemda, etc. But I invite others to please reach out to me because communities, especially in like in Beit Shemesh. We had, you know, the deaths of children around us, Rahman al-Itzlan, quite consistently over the last few years. And these points and pointers and directions are very, very important for people to be attuned to. Now, one of the things that Rav Shamsham Afral Hirsch refers to is that the word shchol, which we use as bereavement, uh, actually comes from metuskal, which means to be in a state of confusion. When a person dies, the people who are, affected find themselves confused. And I wouldn't even say confused, let's go beyond that. They're in a complete state of chaos. So when your life becomes chaos, you don't know how to react. You don't know necessarily how to talk to people. And all of a sudden your communicative skills are gone. So I ask people to understand and, and loss by the way, is not during Shiva. Loss begins even more so after Shiva, after Shloshim, after the first year, because this never goes away. It plagues a person consistently. Children, siblings, family, parents, spouses, they are consistently plagued with loss. 
So I ask people who want to, God forbid, it should never encounter, but at least want to comprehend what someone's going through who is bereaved to understand that they are in a state of chaos. And if they have to leave a social setting or if they can't respond to you properly, or if they look angry or sad on a particular day, or if they're not as misameach at your children's wedding, it's not personal. It's because they are in a state of chaos and they're not sure exactly what to do, not with you, but with themselves. And I ask people to be sympathetic and empathetic to that understanding. Rabbi Hammer, as a concluding question, you just mentioned what those who are around the mourner should be thinking and how they need to be understanding and sympathetic. Obviously, you only have your own very painful experience, but perhaps you can tell others who are going through loss, others who are grieving, from your own experience, some words of chizuk. What would you tell someone who is in a state of grief? I'll tell you, first of all, one of the things that I really do believe in that they should do is try somehow to find an outlet, an outlet other than the people who are closest to them. Now, the most obvious outlet is therapy. And I, I, you know, I believe that 90% of the world needs it. Certainly someone who's experienced loss, they need or facing illness or facing someone of a loved one who's going through a challenge. They need to see someone and speak to someone other than the people who are immediately in their confines. So for example, even parents who are dealing with a child who suffers from mental illness, God forbid, they themselves have to remember that they have to look after themselves. They need strength, they need support, they need guidance in order to help their child. A person who is going through bereavement and grieving um, to share it only with your immediate family and confines, number one, that could put them in an uncomfortable and, and sad position again, because you're reminding them of what you're going through. And I try to spare my children of that, even though I do need their support. I, I love when they call me sometimes. I hope they listen to this podcast so they do it more often. <laughs> but um, having a place outside of those confines to store your energy, your grief, your sadness, your frustrations is very helpful. My therapist that I go to, and I've stopped going to her consistently, I really should go more consistently, but I do still go. And I have, I think she's phenomenal. And she's been very helpful to me to be at the very least a place where I can unleash and unload. It's very important to be able to do that because the load is unsurmountable. It's huge and burdensome. And the second thing is, that we should remember, it's very important for us to be supportive of one another and to recognize that the feelings that you have, there are others who go through them as well. With time, people say and ask me, has it gotten easier? And my answer to them is, it doesn't get easier, it gets manageable. And what I mean by that is, is that while I was unable to manage less a year ago with the pain, I still have the same pain. It's still acute. It's still melouve or melave. It still escorts me wherever I go, but I manage and I manage it and I manage with it, unfortunately, and as painful as it is. So that's important also to understand that what you're becoming and what you're trying to do is to manage. 
I can't emphasize enough how much I appreciate you're talking about this very painful topic. I think it's so important for people to hear your story, your experiences, and the chizuk that you're able to provide others who are going through times of difficulty. I thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. And I'll just say as a final note, Rabbi, thank you for having me. I think your program is phenomenal in its exposure and its willingness to deal with very, very difficult issues. issues. Kudos to you, because not everyone is willing to do so. And I'll also say to those out there, Rahman al-Atlan, they should never be, there should never be grievers or bereaved. But if you are, uh, people are always welcome to reach out to me, and I will try and be as helpful as I can. Thank you, Rabbi Hammer. Thank you. If you would like to contribute in Gila's memory to help Rabbi Hammer break stigmas in mental health, please click on the link that appears in the description of this podcast. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.